Well, I don't know if you're familiar with the beginning of the Dickens book, A Tale of Two Cities. Maybe you're not a big Dickens reader. Maybe you'll remember the recent BT advert. There's a young girl walking to school, beginning in the darkness, in her school uniform, and she's reciting these words at the beginning of the novel. It's intense. She's got this backing track, and she says these words. It was the age of wisdom. It was the age of foolishness. It was the epoch of belief. It was the epoch of incredulity. It was the season of light. It was the season of darkness. It was the spring of hope. It was the winter of despair. Wonder as you hear those, do you recognize much of the same kind of concepts, similar pictures, pretty similar to what we've heard in the first 12 chapters of Isaiah? Wisdom and foolishness, darkness and light, hope and despair. BT's point was to use these words with the, with the slogan you've just seen. The future is ours to make with, with a hope for the future. Now, maybe Isaiah 1 to 12 might have felt like a bit of a mix of all of those at once at times, shooting backwards and forwards, a bit like the poem. But you see, Isaiah, he's mapping a very definite trend of what God is doing. Belief from foolishness, light from the darkness, hope from despair. And we've already seen God do that for Isaiah in chapter 6, for Judah in chapter 9 last week. And now tonight we'll see the same for Israel and all the nations. Last week we ended with the hope for the remnant in Judah. That's the southern kingdom where Jerusalem was, where Isaiah was, in the face of judgment from the northern alliance. Do you remember Judah in the south were to say to the oncoming armies, do your worst, but you will be battered. Well, the focus of the rest of chapter 9 and 10 that we've skipped over is what that battering will be like for Israel, who were part of that northern alliance that were invading. And you see, through the rest of chapter 9, we see pretty clearly that God was angry. Just after the end of where we left last week, chapter 9, verse 8, have a look there. Isaiah switches who he's speaking to. The Lord has sent a word against Jacob, and it will fall on Israel. Both Jacob and Israel are named for God's people in the northern kingdom. And the root of Israel's problem is their self-confidence. They see no need for God's deliverance in the, in the context of the superpowers having all the power. Just look at chapter 9, verse 12. This is what's happening to Israel. Chapter 9, verse 12. The Syrians on the east and the Philistines on the west devour Israel with open mouth. For all this... His anger has not turned away and his hand is stretched out still. That's God's anger. Because in the midst of this demolition of Israel, they've still got this misplaced self-confidence. The verse before says the bricks have fallen, but we will build with dressed stones. The sycamores have been cut down, but 
we will put up Caesars in their place. See, the people of Israel, they've completely misunderstood. They think it's like an opportunity to rebuild, blissfully unaware that, blinded by their own ego, that this is God's judgment on them. Israel's got it all wrong. And God's response is consistent throughout. Look at chapter 9, verse 12, the last sentence. For all this, his anger has not turned away, and his hand is stretched out still. Verse 17. For all this, his anger has not turned away, and his hand is stretched out still. Verse 21. Chapter 10, verse 4. For all this, his, hand, his anger has not turned away, and his hand is stretched out still. It's the same sentence. And I don't know if you remember, it's the same sentence that we saw a few weeks back in chapter 5, verse 25. When Judah were in a similar state just before Isaiah sees the throne. Do you remember the moment? The moment, the cinematic shift between the darkness, chaos, judgment, despair. Maybe you'll remember the sentence. There's bodies lying as refuse in the streets. For all this. His anger has not turned away and his hand is stretched out still. This is now being pronounced on Israel. And first it takes the form of political unrest. 20, uh, verse 21 in chapter 9 predicts that there'll be a political unrest, an outworking of God's wrath. God, he refuses to intervene to protect his rebellious people. But he leaves them to the fruit of their rebellious choices. Look at verse 20. Their self-seeking leads to self-destruction. Each devours the flesh of his own arm. See the state of Israel? Each devours the flesh of his own arm. In fact, five out of the last six kings of Israel came to the throne because of assassinations. Sin is being unleashed. Sin runs rampant and it's destructive. You see, sin isn't just breaking down our relationship with our loving Heavenly Father. It's not just creating an estranged relationship and making him rightly angry. But choosing to sin is destructive. For every human relationship and every human experience that we have in this world is like trying to eat our own flesh. Is that your view of sin? Do you hate it? Do you actively try and avoid it? Do you recognise that it's destructive in your relationships, in your experience? Chapter 10 ends with God's judgment on the inhabitants of the northern kingdom look at chapter 10 verse 34 just before we started our reading he will cut down the thickets of the forest with an axe and lebanon will fall by the majestic one again god was angry angry at sin and where chapter 10 finishes with god swinging his axe and the evil system falling and failing Bare stumps, no branches, no birds, no life, no movement, no sound. Chapter 11 begins. 
God's anger is turned away. You see, after the winter of despair, here is the spring of hope. If you've been outside this week, you've probably smelt the fresh smell of spring. It's been warmer. It's been brighter. There's flowers and sunlight. And with the roadmap released on Monday, there's some sense of increased hope for the summer that's coming. Just the thought of barbecues and garden parties, walks without coats on, (laughs) the family fun day on the field at Longfields, things that who knows if they'll happen or not. But just the thought, so exciting, isn't it? After a long, hard, cold winter. But we know that that hope is so uncertain at the moment. But look, in chapter 11, Isaiah gives us a far more substantial hope. Chapter 10 ends with death. Chapter 11 begins with life for the whole world. Fruit from a branch, from a root, from Jesse. There shall come forth a shoot from the stump of Jesse. Jesse was King David's father here. Isaiah is prophesying that a descendant of David will be the solution. What will remain in the northern kingdom after all its destruction is not going to be the Assyrians and their glory, but the remnant of Israel. From this remnant will be a people who truly rely on the Lord. From this remnant will come forth a shoot. But you see, Ahaz was a son of David, a descendant of Jesse, the king that we looked at last week. But you see, Isaiah is making a huge contrast. Ahaz, he was spiritually bankrupt. And yet Jesus, the long promised Messiah, look at what he's going to be like. And the spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him. The spirit of wisdom and understanding, the spirit of counsel and might, the spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord. See, Jesus is everything Ahaz failed to be. Everything that the Old Testament kings failed to be. Jesus is everything we failed to be. That's why Jesus is God's solution. That's why Jesus is our concrete hope. All that's promised in those first few verses, it's like the opposite of what we've seen in God's disobedient people through the first 12 chapters. Remember how Israel and Judah, they hadn't feared God. They'd succumbed to fear of other nations. Well, the root from the stump of Jesse will have a right fear of the Lord. Remember how the woes spoke of the people ignoring God, not bothered about him, but bothered about themselves greedy, not interested in social justice or or anything. Well, the root from the stump of Jesse will judge the poor with righteousness, decide with equity. He will stand against evil. Do you see how these promises pull together Isaiah's metaphors, the felled trees, the branch of the Lord, the cut down stump with the holy seed? 
Jesus is the ultimate fulfillment of God's promise rescue plan. Jesus is the ultimate solution. And look at verse five, look at his character. Righteousness shall be the belt of his waist and faithfulness the belt of his loins. You see, Jesus in his very closest nature is righteous and faithful. He is like that and he acts like that because that is who he is. You see, the solution, the solution to the first 11 chapters, the solution for all of history to God's right anger at sin is one righteous man. His perfect sacrifice is the means by which God can look at you and I and say, your guilt is taken away, your sin is atoned for. The perfect swap, righteous Jesus for unrighteous. And his perfect character is the means by which he rules and reigns perfectly. You see, the arrival of the Lord Jesus, God's perfect king, who turns anger away. As Jesus came to this earth, he introduced a new kingdom, a kingdom that will culminate in the new creation that we see in the next few verses. We get that picture of what it's going to look like. That new creation, a place of perfect peace and righteousness in which all wrongs will be made right do you remember back to chapter two the mountain of the lord raised above all else where the lord is exalted there'll be no mistake people will stream uphill like rivers there'll be no mistake that god is king far and above any other human ruler But here's the beautiful picture in the next few verses of what that perfect restoration will look like. In Jesus, it's a perfect restoral, restoral to what it was like in the Garden of Eden. See all those animals, do you work out what was going on there? There's no more dispute between predator and prey in the animal kingdom. So why even a child could exercise their authority their god-given authority over the animals and look at verse eight the enmity between the mankind and the serpent it's gone no longer the sneaky snake but the safe snake see what's happened the natural order reflects the moral order it's a complete restoral And maybe as we read through these verses and these chapters, you thought, well, when when's it talking about? It's a good question. When is it talking about? Because Isaiah, look at his time stamp in verse one. When a shoot comes forth from the root and bears fruit. When Jesus comes, verse 10, when the root of Jesse is a signal for all nations. Well, when when is it? You see, for Isaiah, writing 700 years before Jesus arrived, in that day, those words that are repeated a couple of times, in that day, it looks long into the future to a day when Jesus arrives. 
And so that means for us now that there is fulfillment of some of these gospel promises in the now of our Christian experience, living under Christ's lordship today. But the ultimate fulfillment, the ultimate fulfillment of these verses is still in the future and the not yet when Jesus returns and sin and death is finally eradicated when Jesus will return. But you see what's exciting about this offer of, of life found in Jesus, it's now available for all people. See verses 11 to 16. He gathers his remnant from everywhere. There's no more differences, but together his people will unite in victory over evil and be filled with pure joy what's promised in the lord jesus in chapter 11 is a perfect picture where there's no dispute about who god is there'll be no dispute about who's in control there's no chance of of turning away but all that's turned away is his anger fully and completely and you see that means that right now because god has been revealed in the person of jesus this is available to all people. And in his sacrifice on the cross, God's anger has been turned away if we trust in Jesus personally. That's available to all. And yet we know until Jesus comes back, there'll always be people that don't recognise it. This evening, as we look at chapter 11, the triumphant saviour is that the triumphant saviour that you trust this evening is it him that you're holding out to people to all kinds of people not just people from judah anymore not just israel not just egypt pathos kush elam but oxfordshire northamptonshire england us As we come to the end of four weeks in Isaiah, what do we do with these first 11 chapters? What do we do with them? How will they equip our armory as God's people? Well, they should be a real comfort to us because these chapters are here that God might comfort you. I don't know what springs to mind when you hear the word comfort, Maybe you think comfort blanket, comfort food, or maybe your, your home comforts. This is Steggy. Steggy, he's about as old as I am. I'll let you decide who's aged better. He was my comfort when I was two. I used to suck his horn when I got upset, give him a big squeeze. Maybe, maybe you still got a comfort blanket, a comfort toy that you keep close to you. But you see, when there's an issue, when there's something serious going on, that squeaking noise isn't going to help. Maybe it's a distraction at best. But those comforts, they don't deal with the issue. They sometimes even make it worse. 
I have a friend who used to work with people pretty regularly that were going to die. And he used to go and ask these people regularly, do you have a hope that comforts you at this time? Now, you can guarantee that they weren't saying steggy or cookie dough ice cream or, or whatever it be, because they're serious issues. We see here, what Isaiah is saying is actually comfort in light of God's very real, tangible judgment and anger at sin that we've seen in the first 11 chapters. It can only be found in one place. Because out of the darkness, the judgment and destruction comes what we've just read in chapter 11. And it's not contingent on us being faithful and just, but it's on Jesus. Here's how Ray Ortland summarizes the first 12 chapters of Isaiah, which I found really helpful. As God catches us up into his purpose, sweeping through history, what do we contribute? Nothing to be proud of. What does God contribute? Grace greater than all our sin. Grace for Isaiah chapter 6. Grace for Judah chapter 8. Grace for Israel chapter 10. Grace for us. Isaiah is saying we have all failed God, but he is not defeated. He has a remedy. His saving grace in our Messiah. He will triumph. See, the key to the story of chapters 1 to 12 is God's triumph of grace over our failure. There is hope from despair for all that will trust in this promised solution, the Lord Jesus, because God saves sinners. We've heard it consistently from the beginning of Isaiah, what he said to his people, God, Though your sins are like scarlet, they shall be as white as snow. Though they are red like crimson, they shall become like wool. We get to chapter 12 and it's a fitting response. Trusting in these promises. See, here's where we land as town church off the back of the first 12 chapters of Isaiah. That the hope from despair is ours today now because although we don't deserve it we deserve God's righteous anger his rescue plan in the Lord Jesus revealed here is effective for us now right now because of the work of Jesus on the cross our sin is atoned for and our guilt is taken away we stand right now before God in confidence because of what Jesus achieves. And that means our hope for the future, our wanting for that day to come, well, it's absolutely concrete, tied to Jesus's victory over death. As surely as Jesus beat death, so will anyone who trusts in him be there when the snakes don't bite anymore, when the lion lays down with the lamb or in more concrete terms, where death 
and sin and wickedness and crying and pain, they're not there. Where there's no dispute that God is in complete control. Where there's no dispute that God is good. In a perfect, perfect world where people stream like rivers up mountains to see him. Where we can see the holy God. It is absolutely certain that you will be there if you trust that this is God's rescue plan. See, when we read chapter 12 and it says you will say in that day. Isaiah is telling us what we can say today. You will say in that day, I will give thanks to you, O Lord, for though you were angry with me, your anger turned away that you might comfort me. You were angry. Your anger turned away onto the Lord Jesus that you might comfort me. This is what the Lord has done for Isaiah, for the remnant of Judah, for the remnant of Israel, for me and for you. Because actually, as Jesus hung on the cross, God's anger was turned away from all those that would trust in Jesus and unto him. Because God will never not be angry at sin. God will never not be angry at sin. He can't. Because right anger against evil is the only right response. But as Jesus took our sin and paid the penalty, that anger is taken away. We can find true comfort in that promise right now because we can stand right before God today, not afraid and not because God's been morally compromised, not because we've been let in by the back door, but because evil has been and will be rightly dealt with what we actually do with chapters 1 to 12 of Isaiah walking away from today will you with utter joy and confidence say the words of verse 2 look at chapter 12 verse 2 behold God is my salvation I will trust and I will not be afraid for the Lord God is my strength and my song, and he has become my salvation. Chapter 12 is absolutely full of this thanks and praise and exaltation of God that we can say today if we trust in Jesus, because God has saved us sinners. And whatever circumstances we face today, in the coming days, months, years, we can praise him with confidence because we know with all certainty that he'll reign for all time. As we see in, verse, in chapter 11. Let me pray. I will give thanks to you, O Lord. For though you were angry with me, your anger has turned away. That you might comfort me. 
we praise you, God, that in the Lord Jesus, we can be confident today our position before you is right and confident in the future because of what the Lord Jesus has done. Father, please help us today to rejoice in this truth. Amen.